What's up, everyone? A few months ago, I went down to Chile to report on a land conservation success story. I recently sold that story to Adventure Sports Network, and here are the first few paragraphs of it. Ramon Navarro didn't initially trust the millionaire. All I have is my name, and if Nico backed out of the deal, my reputation would have been ruined, he tells me. Navarro, Chile's most famous surfer, comes from a family of fishermen in the small town of Pichilemu. Nico Davis, on the other hand, is heir to Euro America, one of the largest insurance companies in the country, and was raised in a life of privilege in the capital, Santiago. The two men come from different worlds, but both served as key players in a recent land conservation success story at Chile's best-known surf spot, Punta de Lobos, in the town of Pichilemu. On a brisk November morning in 2017, Navarro stands in front of a large crowd at El Mirador, the valuable beachfront plot of land at the tip of the point that has recently been protected from development. In the crowd are musician Jack Johnson, members of the outdoor company Patagonia, and hundreds of Pichalemu locals. Cactus hug the iconic cliff, and mustard-colored wildflowers explode in the surrounding pastures. Pichalemu has developed rapidly in recent years, and new homes dot the hillside in the distance. Chilean architecture has a distinct style, and the homes, although uniformly square and boxy, somehow complement the bucolic hillside. As Navarro speaks, the wind whips into the microphone and creates a vibrato. His typically energetic voice sounds uncharacteristically shaky. My earliest memories were listening to the seals barking on the rocks down there, Navarro says. He pauses and turns his head away from the audience and removes his sunglasses for a moment to wipe his eyes. He exhales and continues. I just can't believe this is real. I can't believe the point will be protected forever. He says a few words of gratitude to his community in Spanish, puts the microphone down, walks over to his wife, buries his head in her arms, and begins to sob. Okay, so those were the first few paragraphs, and if you want to read the full story, you can click the link on my Instagram account, or you can head over to my website, kyle.surf blog, where I have linked to the story. This episode is with Kahi Picaro. Kahi is the executive director of Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii. Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii is a grassroots local nonprofit organization run by a small team of dedicated staff and supported by passionate volunteers just like you. They inspire local communities to care for their coastlines through fun, hands-on beach cleanups. They also coordinate educational programs, team-building corporate cleanups, waste diversion services, public awareness campaigns, and they help others run their own beach cleanups. Kahi is hilarious, brilliant, and I highly recommend that all of you get in touch with him and dive deeper into the work that he's doing. This podcast is advertisement free and I rely on listeners like you to make donations through Patreon. So if you have a few extra bucks that you can spare, if you get value out of this podcast, if you dig the conversations that we have here, please head over to my website, kyle.surf, not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf and donate through Patreon. Thank you so much, and please welcome to the show, Kahi Picaro. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen, and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. And away we go. You grew up in Hawaii? Yep. You did? On yeah. what island? Big island? Oahu. On Oahu? Yeah, city boy. But I uh, grew up in Kailua, mostly. Mm. And you grew up surfing, going out to the North Shore? Nope, I was a jock. You were a jock? Uh, yeah, I played basketball, baseball, uh, football, kayaked. Um, yeah, pretty much all the different sports that I could, because uh, my parents didn't want me to turn into a stony a surfer boy. Losers. Well, well they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't hold on to me for too long. I still became both of those for a little while. Yeah. Were you good at sports? Uh I guess in a sense I, I was good at everything, but not great at any one thing. Hmm. Do you f- what were you best at? 
Basketball. Basketball. Yeah. Well, I take that back. Kayaking. I actually got to train for the Olympics for, well, I got to go to the Olympic training centers for about two, two years. Yeah. Really cool. And it's, uh, is that ocean kayaking? No, uh, flat water. So we, we train on the Alawai twice a day and I never once got staph infection. I got, I probably should talk to Cliff. I might have a pretty amazing, uh, microbiome as a result of it. Yeah. That's, that's important, man. A lot of the science about microbiomes is coming out right now. Like that every, every affliction, like all these diseases have to do with our microbiome. So be drinking that lake water kombucha right lake water kombucha or poo pills that's the new thing yeah the poo pills yeah it's <laughs> it it works it's, it's for oh, real you've tried it no i haven't but i've listened to a podcast with a guy who he's he goes into the the jungle and he is mapping microbiomes of the natives there because they have such a such more diverse microbiomes than we do and uh that's one of the issues with with antibiotics is that we don't have as diverse of gut flora as we need um so he is trying to find out the way like the way it was supposed to be till till now well so i don't turn this into a podcast about you (laughs) i'm just joking yeah but to bring it bring it back like the uh the whole surfing aspect was was something i started to get hooked on and i've never looked back yeah Uh, i think one of the best parts about starting late in surfing i didn't really start till i was like 18 was that I'm here almost touching 40 and I'm still getting better. Or at least I feel like I am. Yeah. Yeah. You get, um, increment, like the increments are larger when you start later in a sport. Yeah. Right. That's cool. And then when did you, uh, get involved with working in plastic pollution? Uh, that happened after, um, traveling around the world and seeing the best surf spots in the world being completely, littered with trash, um, the overconsumption of plastics and participating in some cleanups while I was traveling. Um, and then coming back home, uh, only to realize that we in Hawaii are at the front lines of this whole plastic pollution problem as we sit in the middle of the gyre. You think it's going to be solved? Like you're, you're deep in it, man. And it's like, how do you get up in the morning? I get up really easily in the in the morning as You're long morning as person I, no as long as i've had eight hours of sleep um <laughs> so if i i it matters when i went to sleep um but eight hours later i wake up pretty good um also depends on how many uh, drinks i've had the night before um but i get up mostly because i i see progress and i'm able to go throughout my day uh cleaning thousands of pounds of trash off the beaches and talking to people that i've never heard about this issue and and inspiring people because i'm seeing change um, I'm seeing, you know, in the in the laws and the bans that are going through, um, the people talking about the way that they're living zero waste lifestyles, or uh, eating less fish, or eating less meat, and and re- really realizing that on an individual level they can have an impact when it's collectivized. Um, um, but the scary thing is, like, in my lifetime, I don't think it's going to be fixed. Um, there is so much plastic out there. We've got all these um, cultures that are emulating this Western lifestyle. And uh, it's hard for us to really point the finger at them and, and say, hey, man, you, got, you guys are the ones why our, our, our beaches are so dirty. Because, you know, when we clean the beaches of Hawaii, we find all this stuff from Japan, China, Taiwan, uh, Russia, even, even stuff from over here in California. And uh, we look at the way that we consume in Hawaii on, on an average, and we are just as bad. Um, so it's hard to point the fingers until we fix what we're doing at home. And I think Hokulea on their journey around the world really also helped spark the fact that we need to malama honua, uh, but we also need to malama right here at home. And that's what, is, what does that mean? Uh, malama honua means to take care of the earth. And uh, what Hokulea was trying to show was that earth is an island um, and we kind of are, you know. Um, so we need to take care of what we have. It's a limited, finite uh, planet. And uh, just like an island, if we extract too many resources, it'll no longer become inhabitable. But the problem with uh, the Earth is we don't really have anywhere to go. Yeah. Yeah, the the nice thing, I find that a lot of Hawaiians have that sense of island Earth because you live, you, you see the changes more rapidly 
on an on an island, right? It fills up with plastic more quickly. They, they, I mean, even in the olden days with the Ahupua'a system, like you guys had shit figured out. Yeah, it kind of seemed like uh, the Hawaiian culture was was probably the most sustainable culture ever to exist on Earth um, from a human standpoint. I mean, let me be clear there. Um, the earth was doing just fine without us. Um, but when the humans did come around, it seemed like, and you look at the progression of, of more or less a diaspora of humans, right? Um, Hawaii might've been one of the last places to kind of get, um, discovered and, uh, Hawaii, when, when they came, they really realized that it was more than just the land from the top of the mountain to the beach. It actually extended out into the reef and beyond. Uh, so their kapu system of, of really realizing how how to manage not just the land but the waters um, was break was a, is a breakthrough and it's cool that like we've we've evolved so much in in the last hundreds of years um, and we're now at a point of looking back at the way that they did it and trying to restore the way that they did it because that was true sustainability on an island. Yeah, I think that a lot of the ideas that people need to hear today are the ones that have been forgotten. Not the newest, brightest, shiniest, next thing, which we tend to look for in this society, but ideas that worked. You know, living with nature, uh, living in community, things that our ancestors had going, and now we suffer these afflictions like depression and you know, the materials economy, and there's this kind of emptiness inside when if we just turn around and look backwards, uh, that can solve a lot of the problems. Yeah, and also the diabetes, looking at our diets as well. You know, like if we can just simply move back to the way things were, not necessarily sacrificing all of our creature comforts, um, but some of the basics like eliminating single-use plastics, you know, understanding what's happening with our waste and realizing a lot of our waste is actually totally reusable. Um, I think we could really improve, and I know we will, um, because I'm getting to see it. That's why I'm at this conference right now learning about it, um, that we are on the right path and it just takes us stopping the preaching to the choir and building the congregation. Yeah. Do you feel like there is a kind of echo chamber in the conservation movement where you are many times preaching to people who already know what the solutions are and are making the right changes on an individual basis? But I think that for the tide to really turn, we need to start reaching the not so insightful, not so self-reflective, uh, not so, even not, not so smart individual, and it incentivize them to make the right choice, make it easy for them to make a good decision. Yeah, we, we definitely find ourselves in these echo chambers all the time, especially on social media. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think a lot of utilizing social media through sharing and whatnot, you're able to reach a larger um, audience. Uh, when you're talking about the tide turning, we, this is an interesting story. Um, those in Hawaii, may, they may have noticed, maybe they didn't, um, but about you know a month ago, so it's, it's March now, um, we had close to eight days of straight strong Kona winds. And what it did is it stirred up the ocean and all of a sudden, all the trash that is normally found on the east side of all the islands started washing up on the south shore. Uh, so we had nets washing up in Waikiki, plastics washing up all over Waikiki. Um, we had a giant ghost net, one of the biggest ones we've ever removed, washed up on Black Point. And now we've got, we've been picking up these nets on the east side for a decade now. Uh, no big deal. You know, it's, it, it's a really bummer. Um, it's a result of overfishing and commercial fishing. Um, but the minute it washes up on Black Point in front of these rich people, DLNR gets the call, the governor gets the call, the mayor gets the call, and uh, all of a sudden we get a call. Hey, Kahi, uh, can you guys remove a net? And uh, yeah, we can for sure. Yeah, w will you pay us to do it? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay, sweet. All right, no problem. Uh, mobilize a crew and get that picked up. And and. One of the gnarliest things, the house that it was in front of. So we're, we're, we're slowly chipping away at this net and laying it onto the uh, curbside so that we could collect it and then get it taken out by our, by our trucks. We put it on this guy's curb and he comes out 
And he tells us, you're killing my grass. Get these nets off of my grass. And we're just biting our tongues because yeah, maybe I should have snapped a little bit, gone what I like to call the mini moak or, or Franklin. <laughs> you, on you, can, you can turn it on if you <laughs> want to. It's oh, like God, I could have gotten knots, bah, for <laughs> you, you know. Hey, boo. Who are you? But, you know, I, <laughs> we kept it. We kept it cordial um, and just kind of just giggled. And, and it was a really insightful thing because of the the um, people that were working with us, a lot of young people um, were like, man, if that's what it takes, that kind of attitude to reach a social level where you can afford a house like this and complain to the mayor, uh, that's not the that's not the life I want. I prefer being here with your group and, and cleaning up nets and protecting our wildlife and, and living a more minimalized lifestyle. Like that's, that's happiness. So, well, it's, uh, transparency can enrich our lives. And the, the more we learn about these issues as you have, I would imagine that that has enriched your life because you understand how the system works. You're, spending time with good, real people and not not the individuals who spend their time in castles. And I think, like, on some kind of psycho-spiritual level, if you are living in that castle and saying, like, get off my grass, it's the result of not being able to face all of the pain and tragedy that this world has. You know, if you let all of that in, it's a lot to let in. And sometimes too much, and you need to create these barriers for yourself, to, for yourself just to to move through life and and live that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And and a lot of times it's it's the reflection of them not being able to look in the mirror and be like, I got here on the backs of people that I've abused and in, in in my in my work and whatnot. And uh, it's hard for me to really face the fact that I'm part of the problem. Um, but there are a lot of a lot of people that are in that level that are starting to recognize the power that they have and are stepping up to the plate and realizing that, you know, I'm in this situation and I take this. This is for a lot of the, the people that are inheriting wealth. Right. They're like, I'm here as a result of what my ancestors did. I'm not sitting well with that. And I want to figure out how I can. Um, give back and try to fix some of the transgressions that allowed me to be and live this life that I'm in. So a uh, uh, huge hats off to um, a lot of those foundations and, and, you know, a lot of these millennials that are, are coming into a lot of money nowadays and, and realizing that they can have an impact through supporting organizations like ours or, or any of the other millions of nonprofits that are out there fighting the good fight. Yeah. Well, on a, on a certain level, when you um, allow energy in the form of money to move through you, that's one of the only ways you're going to be able to have that kind of power and not get fucked up from it. Yeah. But if you're trying to hoard it and you're in this kind of scarcity mindset of like, yeah. it's all me, I don't need, I don't want to help anyone, those people get tweaked. Yeah. And you see how many famous uh, people commit suicide. Yeah. I think the, the only ones that I've ever met, the only famous people I've ever met who are just normal, um, spend a huge amount of their time being in service and using their resources on behalf of something bigger. Yeah, and I, I'd have to right now just send a huge shout out to Brotherman Jack Johnson, who I, that's who I was thinking yeah, of. Like, just seriously, like <laughs> if anybody, if, if everybody could just take some notes, all all you wealthy uh, individuals that are, are movie stars or even professional surfers. Start taking some more notes of what Jack and his family are accomplishing in Hawaii. It's huge. Yeah, what, do you, what break that down for people? Do they do they support your organization? Well, they do. Well, not anymore. Uh, they they support us in in like non monetary support. Um, but when we first got going, and if anybody's out there that wants to start an NGO, you got to realize like the first two years of your existence is gonna be your savings. Uh, you're not gonna make any money. Um, you're not gonna you're, you're uh, more or less gonna get no grants and everything. All the all the work that you're gonna be done is gonna be funded by you. Um, but it was Jack, uh, the Johnson Ohana Charitable Foundation that stepped up to the plate first and saw, you know what, I'm going to seed this group. They seem to be doing good things. And it was that first donation that they gave us that really springboarded us into being able to become the organization that we are today. Um, and that's, that's for me, right? 
But you look at what they're doing way beyond. They do this for dozens of organizations every year. This little seed, here you go. And what, they, like, what they're doing, they're, they're planting all these seeds and all these things are starting to bloom. And uh, um, small, small incremental investments like that are producing huge fruit. Um, and then you look at what they do in the schools, teaching kids about how to eat healthy, how to grow their own food, how to become more re- reliant on themselves and not on external um, pressures like importing all of our food. It's making a difference in Hawaii. Do you work with kids as well during your in your organization quite a bit? Yeah, to be totally honest here, full transparency. That's, when, that's why we're here, man. <laughs> when, when we first started to get going, we were like, nah, we just clean beaches. Is this what we like to do? Like, let's go clean beach and, and have a band and, and, and have a good time and then go swimming and, and, and then, yeah, let's go after and, and maybe go out and, and enjoy the fact that we cleaned the beach. And that, that was us. Um, but when we started applying for real grants, it was like, what do you do for the education? We're like, oh, education. I'm, I'm a, I'm a finance guy. I don't, I don't know how to teach kids. Um, but Hey, if you want these grants, you got to teach kids. So I started doing it and I fell in love with it. These kids are freaking rad. Um, I, I really enjoy talking to kids, um, all ages, even, you know, I've, I've even talked to, you know, the, the bad kids in the, in the bad boys home. Um, that was a little scary, but there, there. Oh, I even I even went into a a woman's jail um, and talked there. That was kind of scary too. On uh, on Hawaii. Yeah, on Oahu. Really? Yeah, oh, that's a that's a pretty good story. I guess we quickly. I'll just do a little. Do tell, that, yeah, man. So uh, we roll in in there, and I, I'm with one of our um, ed- educators. Uh, she was my protection, I guess, uh, but she. Um, really gave me the guts to go into this woman's correctional facility. And, w- and when we got there, they presented a uh, kind of like a, um, a billboard um, collage of all the work that we had done because they get the newspaper there and they had like cut out photos of me and and, and had <laughs> quotes and whatnot. And like, you know, I, I was like a, a beautiful arts and craft project, but I was a little spooked. Like, photos was, of ka- Kahi, <laughs> shirtless, uh, <yeah>. kayaking. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we gave that talk. Um, I need to go back there. I'm, I, haven't, I haven't been for a while. Um, hopefully all those girls are, are uh, behaving themselves. Um, and if they got out, um, I don't have to be too scared because I'm still here. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I appreciate did, did you gain some empathy for uh, women who walk into a bar and feel sexually harassed? Dude, yes. I, I definitely I definitely felt... Um, felt that energy. Yeah, like, you felt, know how... Felt the, that, that vibe. That meat feeling, right? You're like, I am not a piece of meat. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, women have to go through that every single day. And the thing is, I think the 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 woman I was with was also kind of like a piece of meat too. Like they were, they could get, they could swing both ways. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they, I'm sure they wouldn't mind. Um, but what was what were we talking about? Kids? We were talking, talking about well, kids. So, so you went in and oh, okay. you, and you gave the talk. Yeah. Well, I wanted to bring this back to the fact that um, kids, we do educate kids. Uh, last year, we educated twelve thousand kids about plastic pollution around the entire state. And uh, uh, the grants necessitated um, this program that was our budding education program, which is now 50% of what we do. Um, we built out a 20-foot mobile container that opens up like a transformer that we park in schools and we funnel an entire school through. Um, it's got a movie screen on the top as well, so we, we show movies. Um, so our education station is, is pretty freaking rad. Uh, and we just got a grant from Lush Cosmetics that is able to um, fund our next education station, which is going to be a minivan that does the same thing, but is way more um, mobile. Uh, the kids can walk through it. The back opens up, flat screen drops down, and we can straight up pull up to anywhere and just give a presentation. So we're really looking forward to being able to access a lot more locations that a container couldn't, along with doing pop-up education uh, anywhere. And uh, taking it to the neighbor islands because it's pretty easy to throw a little uh, car on a boat and take it over. Um, And eventually take this thing to the West Coast and represent sustainable coastlines Hawaii on the West Coast. Because they need to realize that when they're throwing stuff away, away is a beach in Hawaii. And make that connection that why are you guys talking about Hawaii here in, in California? 
or Oregon or Washington or Canada or Alaska even or Mexico. Jeez, that'd be rad to go to Mexico. Might have turned it into a little surf trip. Um, their trash is ending up on our islands and uh, we are more or less at the front lines of what's happening with our waste overconsumption and waste management problems are you also so i just listened to your um your talk downstairs which was great um and i wasn't aware of the the protest program that you have going on with surfboards is that um also part of sustainable coastlines hawaii yes so tell me about that Uh, So the protest project represents one of our many projects that we execute that help us push our mission even further, which is inspiring communities to care for their coastlines. Um, For us, we look at the fact that clean beaches start at home in the things that you eat and things that you use. And uh, for me as a, as a surfer, I looked at what I use and I'm like, man, I, I more or less get most of my pleasure other than my wife from surfboards nice save like that one <laughs> so <laughs> i went surfing it was the best day of my life after marrying I, I, you yeah it's the second day best second <laughs> second best day of my life good thing is she's a surfer and we met in the water and, no, and it's, she it's gets all it. good that's cool she gets it um but our surfboards are 100 percent toxic most of them um and as a executive director of an organization that's pushing the fact that we need to look at the way that we consume things i was being a hypocrite so I started recognizing, hey, there are technologies out there that I can start uh, putting into my boards that are, are less toxic. So I talked to my local shaper, Robin Johnston. And I was like, hey, let's start experimenting. And uh, he was all for it. Thank God. He's, he was an amazing shaper. And he's taking this to, to full at heart. And then he's finding stuff that I didn't even know about yet. And I think that's one of the beauties of working with a, a local shaper. It also keeps your... Um, you know, your, your footprint down by not shipping in a bunch of boards. Um, although you are still shipping in a bunch of materials, um, you're supporting, uh, local builders to build better boards for the waves that you're surfing. Um, and what I, the other part that I've learned so much about is how toxic it is, not just for our environment, but for the guys that are shaping or the guys that's glassing or the guy or girls that are, are doing the sanding, you know, like, it is so toxic, it's disgust is gross, right? Like, and and you're like, these guys are sacrificing their lives, like seriously sacrificing years off their lives to make boards for our pleasure, and we're the ones forcing them to use these toxic materials. So the protest project was more or less a opportunity for the pros to test eco boards. We're gonna in- we are incentivizing them to do so with the ten thousand dollar prize purse and an opportunity for a lot of exposure through social media, along with on Surfer Magazine. Um, and it's also a protest against the 100% toxic board. So the way it works is more or less that we've got um, these boards that we got built. Um, they The surfers can check them out like a library. They get their clips, put an edit together, and submit the edit, which then goes on Surfer Mag. Um, and the best edit is going to win 10 grand. Um, I think the best part about this is at the end, screw the pros. Like, like, great, you guys, yeah. We had to we had to incentivize you guys to do this. You should have just done it. But the public part. So in a few days, um, our first public day, we're bringing all the boards back, and we're going to take them out to the sandbar and, and pipe as well. The public can come out and try them. And they'll be able to ride the same boards that their heroes were riding just a few days earlier. Um, just further... Uh, connecting the fact that these boards work. And what do the eco boards look like? They look like your regular board. You can't even tell the difference. Um, the The main difference that you would recognize is if you're usually riding a PU board, uh, most of ours are EPS, although we do have a PU option in the form of Arctic Foam's new algae foam. Um, but most of them are EPS. So the the trick around that to avoid the the feel difference is something that also makes them much more sustainable. Uh, EPS is lighter, right? Like EPS board, you're like, whoa, this thing is really light. And for the North Shore, that doesn't necessarily work. So what we did was we glassed them heavier, making them stronger because a board that lasts a lot longer is way more environmentally friendly than a board that just breaks in just you know a couple couple months or a couple weeks or just in your first session even. And what are the blanks made out of? The blanks are made of recycled EPS foam, and the other blanks have um, an algae-based oil instead of 
petroleum-based oil. So is it made from cuts from uh, other blanks that would have been discarded? The way that they make the recycled blanks is they take a content of recycled polystyrene and in and mix it with virgin polystyrene and then blow it. So the way you make EPS, it's polystyrene, and the E stands for expanded. So they heat it up with a little bit of steam, and boom, it expands to a, way bigger than it was, and it, it binds with itself to make these blanks. And then is it glassed with the same uh, kind of glassing, or do you have different options with that as you well? You have different options, but okay. those are a lot um, fewer and much more expensive. We've been using primarily the regular glass, but then we've been taking it to the next level and using a 25% bio-based uh, resin from Entropy and from ProLink. Um, and these resins can go a lot higher, like 60, 70, and even higher. But the fact that people want white boards is what's holding back the manufacturers from making more of those resins. They're like, the technology's there. We can do it. But no one's going to want to buy the board because it's yellow. Wow. Okay. So that can hold. So, but it could be a, a higher level of um, sustainability if you didn't want the whiteboard. Yeah. When you get a resin tint or what they said is they can tint their resins white then your board will be white forever. So um, the technologies are there. I think I think we as a consumer need to get over um, needing to have a white board. Um, you know, resin tints are getting cooler and cooler. Uh, so, you know, if we start using some more environmentally friendly resin tints, I think we could really push that, um, you know, level a little, little bit quicker. And how can someone order one of these boards? The, the easiest thing is find your local shaper um, and let them know you want to do this. And is And what's the foam called? Uh, E-foam e e from foam. Marco. Okay, um, so it's or, Marco foam. And you, yep. and you, you could get a blank from Marco yep. ordered to your local shaper yep. and get your, new, get your new board. And Arctic foam has the LGPU version. Um, and they don't need to even really go and call Marco because if you're living in Hawaii, uh, this demand that is starting to happen has already um, necessitated a supply. And Arctic foam and Marco foam have realized that this demand is coming and it's here and they're bringing it in before this winter they didn't bring it in and now it's here so that's huge um, and then for the resin the resins at fiberglass hawaii so you can get it right there i like that is that a non-profit as well or is that just part of your sustain or is it part of the sustainable coastlines hawaii uh the protest project has been a part of sustainable coastlines okay. hawaii um, moving forward, who knows? It, it's not, this isn't like a proprietary thing. We're really, everybody's like, so, uh, uh, where, where's this going to go now? Um, um, can, how much would it cost if we did this? And, and I'm like, Hey, you guys can do anything you want. Like this is in a sense, open source technology, but it's, it's just like, we just want the adoption of eco boards to happen quicker. Um, because, uh, if we just hold on to it and keep it tight, you start getting greedy and and you start forgetting the whole reason you're doing it and for us it's to keep beaches clean when it comes back down to it clean beaches aren't cleaned by us cleaning them like that's a it's a futile effort to just keep cleaning beaches we need to look at the source of where it's coming from and in the surf industry with the surfboard being at the base of our entire existence if we start there it will start infecting in a good way with a positive microbiome all throughout our industry and get us to a, a less hypocritically and potentially a environmentally positive industry. Can you see, um, one thing I want to ask you about it being someone who works in the nonprofit sphere is that I think that there's this um, cultural issue we have with people who do good work making a lot of money in the nonprofit world. People are always like, Oh, but yeah, that director, you, they make $150,000 a year. Can you believe it? And I think that we need to flip that argument on its head because if you want to incentivize more smart people to get into the business of doing good, you need to reward them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, when I was outside of the NGO field and even when I was starting it, I was like, I, I'm looking at the salaries of some of these C, these uh, executive directors and CEOs and I'm just like, what? I, 
that is that seems so exorbitant like it doesn't seem fair like why aren't they using that money for their mission um, but when you realize that the talent of the people that they have in the helm of those big organizations if they were to go out into the private sector they'd be making 10 times that amount so a ceo making 300,000 probably making 3 million you know or maybe even more and when you look at it their sacrifice to go outside of where they would be making money to come into an NGO and spend their time using their knowledge that has made their private companies so huge is a huge philanthropic donation. Whereas you've got a CEO who's making, say, $30 million a year, okay? They simply write a check for $500,000 and they're looked at as this, you know, Jesus, yeah, like, oh moral, my God. moral hero. You this get your name on plaques and on buildings, and we want to thank the, we want to thank the Kahi Center for yeah. their generous donation. And and we, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I, after I started understanding uh, what it takes to run an organization and, and and make it flourish and whatnot, it's a lot and lot of work, and a lot of these people that are are at the helms of some of these larger um, NGOs. <laughs> they deserve that money um, and people need to stop looking in their pockets and realize the sacrifice that those people are making to take this organization to the next level but if those organizations are failing yeah screw that like come on like you need to have milestones that's that justify the um, salaries that these executive directors are making absolutely there are some nonprofits that are superfluous and don't need to be here and they're kind of limping along from a generation past and they're trying to at like many organizations in government trying to make the case for their existence that's one of the issues that i see with big government is that you get a lot of people who start working in this bureaucracy and then they just try to make cases for why their organization needs to be here and they need we need bigger budgets and you know well the military needs half of all your taxes because uh well, we got to use the guns, right? We got to use them somewhere. Otherwise, the, mil the, the budget could shrink. And I think that, um, yeah, the, the nonprofit sector needs to be reexamined largely f because we have this issue with how much people should get paid. I think that people doing good work in the world should be getting paid a lot of money. Also, long-term strategy. You look at a corporation, they can have this you know, like a, a company like Netflix, they could have this five-year, or Amazon's a good example. They were losing profit for a number of years when they were getting their distribution and their company set up. But they knew that there was going to be a point when then it was going to all turn around and they're going to become mega successful. Whereas in the nonprofit world, you're working on these six-month to one-year uh, goals, like goal-setting um, increments. And it's really difficult to get any kind of uh, big change to happen in a year. Yeah, the the short term versus long term goals um, that the nonprofit world faces are identical to the problems of public companies with uh, shareholders that are requiring quick returns, etc. And this short term thinking is what's holding back a lot of the growth that's possible that you see in companies like Apple or Amazon um, who are make, made these huge investments at a loss, realizing what the potential was moving forward. And it, that's the biggest problem with shareholder, um, more or less, the, when you take a public company. And as a shareholder, and I, I think this is slowly changing, uh, we need to be more socially responsible along with having a longer vision of what's possible from um, making money from these companies. Yeah. So what is your long-term goal with with your nonprofit? I mean, you said you started just cleaning beaches and then it became this thing that I'm guessing you didn't plan on. Yeah. But you're a smart guy and I can see that you are a, a visionary thinker. What do you um like what do you see, you know, 5 years from now? Where do you want to be? Yeah, uh, man, we just went through our three to five year strategic plan, which I, I encourage any NGO to go through and any company really for that matter. Um, but for us, a, 
the ultimate goal of a nonprofit, ironically, is to go out of business because you know you're no longer needed to solve the problem that you got instituted for in the first place. Um, but I don't see that happening in the five year. <laughs> um, since we've started, the beaches have gotten dirtier, and the level of what they're at right now is some of the dirtiest I've ever seen. Um, and it's scary. The fact that we had Waikiki with a bunch of trash on it recently is just a, a huge wake-up call. And I think that we're starting to, as a collective Hawaii, um, recognize that this is a bigger problem than um, the resources that are put towards it to fix it. Um, so in the, in the short-term three- to five-year plan, um, our goal is to really ramp up the amount of education that we're able to do and potentially create a STEM um, you know, more or less a STEM curriculum that gets into the schools to teach the kids about sustainability and, and, uh, you know, hopefully get them to be inspired that to become the new innovators, the eco innovators, uh, learning about the circular economy versus the linear one that we're on, um, and really inspiring the change that we need because we need them. Um, we also want to really up our game with the beach cleanups. You know, if you've ever been to one, it's, it's quite unique, uh, mostly in the size of the scale, but even more importantly in the fun. Uh, we want to take them to become bigger, um, but even more fun. Uh, so that means just lots more people. Right? right now, we're averaging about 300 to 500 people. Sometimes we have up to 1,100 people at our cleanups. Um, we want to take that up to like 3,000. Um, maybe even just do island-wide cleanups and, and just really ramp up that size and then bring together everybody at the end to celebrate on a larger scale, bringing in big promoters, big, big bands, and show that you can have an event that is plastic-free, having fun and replicating the fun that they had at the cleanup and that energy to keep it going. Um, and those are, those are kind of our, our short-term three- to five-year goals is to just really ramp up the size of what we're doing to the next level. Do you ever work uh, directly with companies that produce single-use plastic to try and get them to change their supply chain? Yeah, we, we definitely do. Um, you know, a lot of our a lot of our funding comes from the corporate world um, because we have a um, ability. I, I come from the corporate world, so being able to understand corporate social responsibility and their need to find um, a way to get tax write-offs as well um, lends us to reaching out to corporate side. But the it's hard to take money from somebody that is more or less. Uh, a single-use plastic creating company. Um, we recently got offered um, a couple of years ago uh, money from 7-Eleven, and it was, it was, we had to say no. But we didn't say no at first. And we were like, okay, you know, we'd be willing to work with you if we can address some of these issues surrounding the products that you're selling and products that you're handing out unnecessarily. And yeah, that didn't go anywhere. But maybe in the future it will, um, because we've had hotels come to us um, and being like, hey, we're, we want you to come in and take a look at what we're handing out to our guests. Um, we want to make sure that, um, and that this cool part, it, it's led by them. We want to make sure that we're not being hypocritical by supporting you. And then we're over here handing out single use plastic water bottles. Um, so being able to influence brands um, based on funding has been really important and it's it's making a change i think one of the biggest brands would be adidas and um corona through our partnership with parlay for the oceans um that's a huge tangible um proof that influence on brands is happening by small nonprofit groups like ours through the help of parlay for the oceans and what's what did adidas do well, Adidas is looking at their supply chain and looking everywhere where they've been using virgin plastic, so plastic that's never been recycled, like fresh from the refinery, and figured out whether they could replace it with recycled plastic. Even better, Parlay is like, what about taking it into the next step and utilizing ocean plastic? And that has been huge. Can you guess how many, or guess how many shoes they make a year? Adidas. Um, how many shoes does Adidas make a year? 20 million? 20 million shoes. 20 million shoes. Not even close. Not even close. 300 million pairs of shoes. So that's 600 million shoes a year. (laughs) What? Yeah. And last year, what they did was they took a million of them and made them out of ocean plastic. And this year, they're making 7 million. So 14 million shoes, right? Out of ocean plastic. And they want to... 
do better, do it even more. Um, and they want to figure out other ways to uh, improve their supply chain. Like they've gotten rid of a lot of the hang tags. They're trying to find a solution to poly bags. They're looking at their packaging. They're stopping the cellophane wrap around their, their um, big shipments. Uh, so, so big brands like that, um, it's great to see that they're realizing their impact and ability to improve the environment, but lead by example. I like that a lot. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about how you can get the not so insightful, not so smart citizen to make good choices more easily. For a while, I was focused on individual action. I, I thought that, like, okay, well, if we just get the good people to make the dec- the best decisions, then we'll see this kind of tipping point. Because you don't need half of the people in society to make the right decision for it to really change. You can see that with uh, the the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King, he didn't have half the population on his side, and he was able to move mountains. But I think that when it comes to a, I think that that thinking is true when it comes to social change like the way that we think about gay marriage now has changed massively in the in the last few years because a relatively small number of citizens have made their voices heard and th- there's this tipping point that's happened but when it comes to environmental issues something like plastic pollution you need to get those big companies like Adidas to shift their supply chains chain so that you the individual don't need to think about making the right decision every single time you go to the store yeah and that that goes the same with like government legislation as well you know a lot of us are are, especially in hawaii have two to three jobs just trying to get by Uh, we can't afford a lot of these products that are more eco-friendly and are stuck Um, sometimes eating fast food and and it's it's sad Um, but the socioeconomic disparity between um, the organic and, and the people just trying to get by is huge. Um, and that's when you need legislation to come in and force the people that are making our stuff to make better stuff. Um, and, it, you know, you, you were talking about um, the needing amount of people to make change. The scary thing is we had over half the country vote for somebody, yet the other person got in. So we need even more than, than the majority. Um, and I think one of the problems that we're having from a legislative standpoint of being able to legislate plastics is the facts that plastic is made out of oil or liquid natural gas. And those lobbying arms are one of the top three in the entire world. And they're able to influence our government. And uh, people can realize that, that issue they can understand that we can't rely on the government until we have somebody in power in the Supreme Court that is able to repeal Citizens United that limits the amount of contra- political contributions that people can make. Um, yeah, I just really, that, that's the really like scary part that I've really nailed down onto after just picking up trash off the beach. It led to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you follow the river far up enough with most issues, um, it leads back to campaign finance reform Mm -hmm. and how you have politicians that are incentivized to create lax laws for um, plastic, for example, because the American Chemistry Council is giving massive donations to to politicians. Um, So, yeah, it does it does end up there. And and there are these moments, too, where, I mean, at the end of the day, we still do live in a democracy where people can get voted in and voted out. And it it is, you need citizens at certain points to really make their voices heard. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that that kind of thing can change, but it needs to be strategic. And then there needs to be laws made so that dangerous products just aren't on the market. Like there was a point when people would paint their uh, their houses with lead paint, and it was um, it was giving people it was uh, what, what was it? It was like lead, ma- lead poisoning. Lead poisoning, yeah, make, makes people more violent. It was uh, giving them all these these issues, and that got taken off the market. Thank God, at a certain point. And I think that we're now getting into these other uh, these other products that we're looking at. Um, that sh- yeah, that should get taken off the market, I believe. And it was a it was a health driven decision, right? Right. And the cool thing is, there's a lot of science that is being uh, exposed now regarding plastics. Um, there's there seems to be three ways you can affect change when it comes to plastics. It's the I don't like a dirty beach. Um, the second one is 
I don't like it hurting the animals. So you show the animals and, and the people cry. And the third one is, holy shit, this is affecting my health. This is affecting my potential kids' health. It's making uh, my boys more feminine. Um, With the endocrine disruptors, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, the size of your taint is getting shorter. So uh, Charles Moore was saying it the other day. He was like, you want to see who's more of a man? Why don't you go measure their taint? And it's probably as a result of the endocrine disruptors um, from their plastic exposure or their, their mother's plastic exposure. Whew, yeah, and that's that's the problem with a lot of the environmental issues that, that we're facing now is it, it's not immediate. You don't see the effects immediately. You see it a generation later. Yeah. Um, so it's easy for um, industry to get to get the blood off of their hands. Yeah, and also I, I'm not sure if people know what a taint is, so maybe you could explain. <laughs> what is a taint? <laughs> oh no, it's Hawaiian jargon. I have no idea. <laughs> nice try. Um, yes, yeah, endocrine endocrine disruptors. Man, that's I just had Emily Penn on the podcast. Oh, that's you know, my her, girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was talking about uh, the the health testing that they've been getting done yeah she told you about how she draws her blood with all the other women and they get to see their levels of of what and i think there was one about that that lead one where she there was like a woman that was before that and her just spiked but then all the younger kids they didn't have any exposure to it and it sort of shows how quickly in like banning things um legislative moves can really affect the health of humans in a good way yeah, yeah. So what are the big ones that you see coming up w- regarding plastic? Are there state-level bans, city-level bans? Like what's uh, the, the nice thing one thing I like about talking to you is that you are in it deeply enough to truly keep score? Yeah. Um okay, big moves going forward. Um our little steps. Uh we've got like the the straw bans happening all around the the planet right now, which yeah. is cool. Right? I'm, I'm stoked about it. I don't want to take too much gas away from it. But I also think that a lot of these smaller bands, plastic bag, we're just like chipping away. We need bigger moves, right? And uh, I also feel like some of these smaller bands are only deflecting the real problem. And it's, it's more or less a play by the American Chemistry Council to be like, okay, what can we sacrifice? All right. Oh, a straw. Okay, that's easy. You know? Um, so... I'm really worried of the fact that the debris that we're finding in Hawaii uh, on our east side beaches, the beaches where nobody goes to, is primarily from commercial fishing. And we don't talk about it. Like very rarely do people talk about how bad commercial fishing is, Uh, mostly because we love our spicy ahi tuna. You know, we love our poke. We love our sashimi. And uh, to look ourselves in the mirror and be like, wait, I'm potentially um, at fault here because this fish was caught in a very unsustainable manner utilizing techniques that a lot of us would consider cheating um, but they're only doing that because of this huge demand for tuna Um, so the these small bands for single-use plastics and whatnot are really good because it gets the the narrative going but I think we really need to start looking closer at what's washing up on our shores in Hawaii and starting to figure out how do we stop the amount of commercial fishing waste that's washing up on our beaches. Are you talking about nets? Nets, primarily, and ropes that come together. And when they're in the ocean, they're called ghost nets. Uh, you know, they're killing with, with nobody harvesting. Um, fishermen oftentimes throw them overboard on purpose to create fish aggregating devices, which bring in little ecosystems that bring in the big pelagics that they want to harvest, and they put a huge purse net around it and get everything. No. Oh, you didn't know about these? No, I didn't know oh, about this. Gets, I had, well, I had Ben Kneppers on, on the podcast from yeah. Boreo, and he was saying that 11% of all ocean plastic is these nets because the fishermen will use them a few times. And then it's like a climbing rope. At a certain stage, you don't want to use it anymore because you could lose your whole catch if yeah, it if it, if it goes. So there's no incentive for them to bring them to to reuse them many yeah. times or bring them back to shore because you could just yeah. cut them loose. You cut them loose because it's also taking up room on your boat and gas is expensive. Um, but the fads get worse, man. What they do is they're now putting these little um, buoys, we call them smart fads, that are solar powered. 
They can tell the depth of the water, temperature of the ocean, most importantly, the GPS location so that the fisherman can come back and find it. But what's worse is they can tell the average size of the fish underneath and the density of the school. So where the right variables hit, ping, the boat zooms right over there, grabs everything, pulls that net and that buoy out and throws it right back in the ocean. So these things are floating everywhere. And that's one of the main reasons I think that we're starting to get a lot more of these ghost nets out on our beaches in Hawaii. Whoa. All right. So explain that to me just once more. I'm, I think I get it. But so they'll, they'll cut a net loose. It will trap a number of small fish, which will then lead bigger fish to it. How, how no, does that work? No, no. Okay. So a fisherman, when they're out fishing, they're, they're looking for the birds. They're looking for the trash because under the trash, You'll get little fish that be like, oh, it's a shelter. I'm, I'm safe here. And then that brings in more fish. You know, mollusks start forming. Little, little uh, boost neck barnacles are forming and whatnot. And it creates an ecosystem to a point where the big fish come in. Kind of like the fads that, that the government put out on purpose for us to go free dive or, or troll by. It's the same idea. It creates an ecosystem. So they don't need to, um, you know, trap fish in it. It, it creates its own living organism. Um, and sometimes they do bait it a little to bring in the smaller fish and whatnot to make it happen quicker. Um, but primarily they're just taking their old nets um, and rope and line that they don't use anymore. And so they don't waste it. They turn them into fads. Holy shit. So what can, uh, what organizations are taking on the fishing industry? And what are the what are the changes that they can make? Let's let's the organizations that are taking on the fishing industry. I couldn't even tell you. They are more or less one, another one of those huge lobbying arms that probably it'd be pretty dangerous to take them on. Um, so I, whoever they are, I, I, I give them big kudos um, because they're keeping a pretty low radar. Um, but there is one that comes to mind that I think is truly inspirational. I actually just spent some time with them. Um, and that would be Captain Paul Watson and Sea Shepherd. Um, they get it and they are willing to take the risks necessary to protect our oceans, not just our whales, but our every animal that's in the ocean. Um, so I hats off to, to Paul and, and his crew. Uh, people like Rasta and, and servers for cetaceans. Sea Shepherd is that one main group, but I, can't, I honestly couldn't think of any other large ones. And then on a personal level, what can we do, right? It's like, man, like, what am I supposed to do? Well, first off, don't buy canned tuna. Um, don't buy that previously frozen um, carbon monoxide full um, poke from the store, from a any of those stores. Uh, if you're going to eat poke, try to find the guy down the street that's got the, the sign on, on the side of his road or uh, on his truck that says fresh fish. Those guys caught it with their lines on the back of their boats. Um, even supporting the longline fishery in Hawaii is terrible. I'm not sure if you've seen a lot of the news, but the, the, the unfair labor practices, the, the close to more or less slave labor that ha happens, the indentured servitude that these poor guys have to deal with. Um, that is all what we consider sustainable local fishery. So it's really tough to get guilt-free poke nowadays unless you know the fisherman or fisherwoman that got it for you and you trust them. Um, and that's, a, that's really scary. And I think that's why also um, a lot of environmentalists, when they get to the crux of being at the peak of what they believe to be a pono lifestyle, they go vegetarian. Yeah. Do you know who Ian Urbina is? He's the New York Times uh, writer who did this series called The Outlaw Oceans, which is all about the um, slave labor at sea. Yeah, I met him. He's he's freaking inspiring. Fuck. How's the sacrifices he made to get those stories? Jeez. Man, I mean, he, he blew open this, this story on the fact that a lot of... Uh, a lot of fishing industries, especially around Africa, will take people on board, offer them a certain amount of pay, get them out to sea, and take them in as slaves. 
And, and, and there are stories of people who haven't been off a ship for like three years, you know, and then they'll just drop them. And it's really disgusting. But, you know, the ocean is the, it's the last frontier yeah. where you can go out there and there aren't many people to look and see what it is that you're really doing. And if you go into a, a developing country where people don't have voices, uh, this kind of stuff can happen. So uh, he won a, num- a number of awards for the series that he did and i know that greenpeace is also working um on that level of of uh like slavery slavery at sea and and kind of busting down the doors on on what's happening out there awesome awesome yeah i forgot to mention greenpeace sorry guys yes (laughs) but i i think that what we as consumers need to realize is they're doing this this illegal fishing this indentured servitude and and uh, you know these terrible fishing practices not to feed like their family like in a sense they are but they're doing this because it's a demand that's been created by us so if we really uh want to figure out what we can do it's look at the way that we're consuming things share what you now know and get others to jump on board to say this isn't right and it's got to stop fuck yeah man uh, that was an hour, but what's, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, primarily, you know, you can get in touch with us through our Instagram page. That's <laughs> at, in, what are we now? We're at sustainable coastlines, Hawaii, um, website, sustainable coastlines, Hawaii.org. Um, also you can learn more about parlay, parlay.tv. Um, and it, you know, I guess that the, the best way to get a hold of us come to one of our freaking beach cleanups. I will. I, I would love to next time I'm out in Hawaii. Uh, great stuff, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down. My pleasure. Buzz, do this again. That's our show, everyone. I'm going to play you out with a song called Shimona Dank by Light the Band. They are a local band from Santa Cruz. They sent me some tunes. And if any of you are musicians and you want your music played at the end of the podcast, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf and send it in. Also, don't forget to head over to my website, kyle.surf slash blog, to read the story, Convergence, that I read a little bit of at the beginning of this show. You can also click the link on my Instagram page. And as always, thank you to everyone who donates on Patreon. I rely on listeners like you to be able to prioritize this podcast, get amazing guests like Kahi, and keep these episodes coming at you every single week. Much love. Thank you so much for listening. And enjoy the song by Light the Band. <laughs>